Welcome to Corvette Today, the podcast that talks about everything Corvette, with your host Steve Garrett, MC and DJ at one of the largest Corvette weekends in the country, Corvette Fun Fest, president of the Corvette Club of Kansas City, Missouri, and radio disc jockey at the number one radio station in Kansas City for over 40 years. Here's Steve Garrett. Hey, thanks for listening to Corvette Today, the podcast that talks about everything Corvette. I'm your host, Steve Garrett. I appreciate you tuning in. You can listen to Corvette Today on all the major podcast platforms like iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Apple Podcasts, Anchor.fm, Breaker, Radio Public, Pocket Casts, and Overcast, and more. You can also listen on your smart device. Just say Alexa or Hey Google. Play the podcast called Corvette Today, and you're connected. Also, visit my website, CorvetteTodayPodcast.com, and sign up for Corvette Today notifications, updates, and information at CorvetteToday.ck.page. Don't forget to visit my website, CorvetteTodayPodcast.com, and make sure you join the Corvette Today Facebook group, too. I'd like to thank our flagship sponsors of Corvette Today, Hendrick Chevrolet of Kansas City. Hendrick is the largest seller of Corvettes in the Kansas City area, and they ship nationwide. Visit ChevyUSA.com or call 913-384-1550. 913-384-1550. Also, MidEngineCorvetteForum.com. If you'd like to join a new vibrant forum that focuses on the new mid-engine C8 Corvette, it's free to join this friendly Corvette community. You'll meet a lot of fellow Corvette enthusiasts like yourself at midenginecorvetteforum.com. My guest on Corvette today is the person that you can thank for how well your Corvette handles. He's worked for GM for 34 years, and he spent 15 of those 34 years as the ride and handling vehicle dynamics engineer for Corvette. Simply put, he's the Corvette test driver. He's been tuning magnetic ride control for GM for 20 years. He's affectionately called the Corvette Ringmeister, and we'll explain that nickname a little bit later on the podcast. My guest today, Mr. Jim Merrow. Jim, welcome to Corvette Today. Thank you, Steve. It's a pleasure being here. I really appreciate the opportunity. You bet. I appreciate you taking the time to do this, Jim. I'm fascinated with your job. You worked for GM for 34 years, but your degree is in mechanical engineering. How did you get this wonderful job of test driving for Corvette? Well, it actually goes back to 1995 as far as the test driving aspect. I was a ride handling engineer on the Chevrolet Lumina, which was great fun at the time. I never did any track work, but I had to go to Grattan because the Lumina was going to be the new police car. So I was at Grattan Racetrack with the Lumina and a guy I would now consider my grandfather because he's two ride-handling Corvette engineers removed from me. Scott Allman was running a 24-hour test on the 1995 C4 Corvette. Scott and I had some background because the W car I was on was the Grand Prix, the Lumina, the Buick Regal, and the Oldsmobile Cutlass. And before Scott was the Corvette development engineer, he was the Grand Prix. So Scott and I shared the same office. And a quick sidebar, I'll tell you a pretty cool story. In that office were the four ride and handling engineers on the W car. The Grand Prix was Scott Allman. I, at the time, was doing the Buick Regal. Liz Pilibosian, who became a chief engineer, was doing the Lumina that I eventually took over. And the guy sitting right next to me doing ride and handling on the Oldsmobile Cutlass Supreme was Taj Juchter. Really? <laughs> yep. I met Taj in the late 80s. We've been good friends ever since. Clearly, our career paths didn't follow the same trajectory, nonetheless. That's a little sidebar. A lot of people don't know that, but it's pretty cool. So pretty close. Anyway, back to the how I got 
driving Corvettes. So Scott was running the 24-hour test, and I was doing Lumina. <laughs> yeah, and, and you know, I think he would run three laps, and I would run one, and he'd be laughing me again. And the thing where I got lucky was John Heinrichsy was supposed to come out and be the second driver. They would each take a take and fuel, right, and then switch drivers. Then John would drive, Scott would drive. Lucky for me, John never showed up. <laughs> really? He just didn't show up. Wow. So Scott's sitting there, and Scott knew I had been racing cars for 10 years up to that point. And, and actually, in 95, I had just got to drive at the 24-hour Le Mans with Doug Rippey. Wow. And so I did have some background. So, you know, he was faced with a dilemma. Do I let the car sit or do I let Merrill drive? And <laughs> luckily for me, he decided that they're spending too much money to let the car sit. So I got about a 10-minute lecture on the fact that we're running a durability test and requiring data and wrecking the car was not an option. <laughs> I ended up doing two days of driving on and off with Scott. He'd run a tank, I'd run a tank. And then when Scott was running his stuff, I'd be doing the luminous stuff. So it worked out pretty cool. The beauty of that one was that even though I didn't get the official Corvette Ride and Handling Engineer job until 2004, from that day on, I never missed being one of the drivers of the 24-hour test. And the 24-hour test is not around the clock. It's a very rigid test. The clock starts when the car leaves the pits. Right. And it stops when it comes back in. So it's actually 24 hours of running at race speeds. I think since then, until the day I retired, I ran probably 25, 24-hour tests on a Corvette. So that's kind of how I got into being a test driver, even though I didn't have the official position for nine years later. That's amazing. So you started on Corvette in 2004. Now, was that your first assignment then to do the 24-hour test? No, no. The first assignment, I'll digress for a second here. In 2000, I started working on the Cadillac STS. Oh, okay. And while I was doing the STS, we were doing Magnetic Ride, and the Corvette, the 2005, the first C6, they were struggling with the calibration. So Dave Wickman, who was the Corvette development engineer, and by the way, nobody on this planet knows anything more about Corvettes than Dave Wickman, asked me to maybe help out and try to get the MR car off a of stop order. We were able to do that. He got it back into production. And at that point, I, I think I got on the radar for Dave Hill and Dave Wickman until 2004, the STS, I got a call from my boss, Frank Delapia. I was going to stay a few extra days and do some Autobahn stuff. And Frank said, hey, are you going to stay a few extra days? And I said, yeah. He said, you need to be on a plane tomorrow. And at VIR on Tuesday, you're the Corvette guy. Wow. <laughs> that was when I officially got the job in 2004. And it's kind of like elation and holy crap all at once. It, you know, it's like be, be careful what you wish for. Right. Because from the outside looking in, oh, you don't drive Corvettes. But then suddenly you're the guy that everybody will look to. Right. The pressure is tremendous. And I just try to be humble and, and do my job. And it all seemed to work out. That's a fantastic story, Jim. Thank you. They had already put the C6, C51, and FE2 into production. My first assignment was a C6, Z06. You know, that's just jumping right into the fire sure. because the Z06 was a hardcore track car. And actually, when Frank said, you got to go to VIR on Tuesday, it was to meet Ron Fellows and, and Ron was going to do some work with us. And, you know, so I'm, here I am just hearing of Ron Fellows and, you know, three days later, I'm working with him. Wow. But it was a hardcore track car. We went to racetracks throughout everywhere in the country. 
doing the chassis stuff. And obviously the LS7, which in the beginning had some growing pains. And it got to the point where the more growing pains we had, the more track time we got because this was a high profile car, you know, over 500 horsepower. Sure. And it got to the point where we were down in the southeastern part of the United States. We were going to Homestead, Roebling Road, Moroso Road, Atlanta. And the engineers would fly into one track and then we'd come home for the weekend and the technicians were moving a complete operation to the next track. We'd fly back in Sunday night, spend the next week in the next track. So it was a pretty crazy time. Man, I got some great track time during the C6, C06. That sounds like a rock star job, Jim. Oh, it was awesome. It was a good time, man. Boy, that's fun. Talk about some of the most significant changes that were made as we've gone from generation to generation. Clearly, the fourth generation to the fifth generation was a remarkable achievement. And the whole fifth generation story was incredible. I mean, going back to the secret design studio engineering going on in a locked room at the basement of Chevrolet Engineering, spearheaded by Jim Perkins and Dave McClellan, clean sheet of paper, suspension, structure. I mean, obviously, you know, the fourth generation was a great car, but the fifth generation was just leaps and bounds ahead of it and created the platform all the way up to the C7. And that's also when the fifth generation got very, very serious in the eyes of the world. Corvette came up on the radar for some of the significant competition over in Europe. Right. And just as significant, I think, was the jump from the sixth to the seventh generation car. Sixth generation, again, great car. It's bulletproof. But as I was working through the sixth generation, one of the things we wanted to do was for the seventh generation was create structural stiffness for the car for a convertible on every model. So obviously Ed Moss and his guys were just geniuses when it comes to body structure. So they increased the structural stiffness of the seventh generation car by 50% over the sixth generation car. Wow. When you have a structure like that, the rigidity, it's an attribute for everything downstream. Right. There's no downside to structural stiffness. The other thing is when I inherited the sixth generation car, I was suspect of the, some of the steering stiffness stuff. It felt like the car had some compliance. So we did a project with our steering group. We did a bunch of measurements, compared it to our competition, and we realized we had some pretty good opportunity to improve the steering stiffness for the seventh generation cars. We revised every part from the hub to the steering wheel and increased the stiffness by 500% over the C6. Wow. Terrell Johnson, who was design engineer, was just relentless. He fought hard battles, and he won every one of them. He would not back down, and, and we worked together. That was a huge thing for drive, for road feel, communication with the driver. Right. The next was the next generation of magnetic ride. One of the things with the sixth-generation car with magnetic ride was the software at that time was somewhat archaic. We had different algorithms for sport and tour, mm -hmm. but there was a bunch that shared between the two. It was kind of like you had one arm tied behind your back. You had to maintain the set of algorithms that were shared by trying to do a touring cal and a track cal. Right. And it was it made it very different. But with the seventh generation car, each tour, sport, and track had its own complete set of software. So whatever I did with tour only affected tour, whatever I did with sport, whatever I did with track. And it freed up the ability to make the car more refined beyond anything we had done to that point. Right. And the final thing, I'd say, for the seventh generation car was electronic power steering. And to be honest with you, full disclosure, I was against it. I didn't want to put that in the car. You know, I was pretty satisfied with the sixth generation hydraulic. And the main reason for that was because the demonstration car we were showed didn't perform that well. Blessing in disguise. I can't remember the vice president at the time overruled us. 
He said, you're going to use it and you're going to make it work. That's where everybody's going. It was probably one of the best things that happened for the seventh generation car because the electronic steering is like magnetic ride for steering. You can tune every part of the steering, just barely touching with two fingers to hardcore track driving. I told uh, the steering guy I was working with, I said, my God, I'm, I'm happy they didn't listen to me. <laughs> Because this is one of the best things we've done for the seventh generation car. And then obviously with the seventh generation, you had the styling, the interior, the seats. You know, pretty much everything in the driver's compartment was a, was a huge step up. I mean, everything was pretty significant, I think. It really was. I know that they said that the difference between C6 and C7 was enormous. The two big knocks against the C6 were the seats and the interior. Right. And Lear has started making seats for the C7, and all the plastic is now replaced with leather. Only two parts had remained from the C6 generation into C7, right. and that was the latch on the target top and also the filter for the cabin. Right. So everything else was brand new. I remember Harlan talked about we were going to do a mid-engine for a C7. We didn't. Right. It didn't mean we just threw stuff to C6, and it was still ground up. It was still a ground up new car. Taj was great enough. Well, before we were going to uh, do the C7, he said, make a list of what you want in the next gen. And everything I desired, he put in. That's amazing. Yep. He's a great chief engineer. We're talking with Jim Merrill, the test driver for Corvette. Coming up in segment number two, we're going to talk a little bit more about the green hell. You know that more as the Nürburgring. You're listening to Corvette Today, the podcast. Hey, honey, are you awake? Mm, I am now. I can't sleep. Since turning 50, I keep dreaming of a red door and a blue door, somehow knowing there are only choices for retirement. Okay. Through the red door, we outlive our money. We have to rely on our kids. We're stuck on a fixed income. It's terrifying. Yeah, that would suck. But through the blue door, our money outlives us. We retire on our terms. Our kids stay our kids, not our caretakers. We make work optional. Yes, that's much better. That's what I want too. But what do we do? We call True Wealth and Company at 913-653-8783. They specialize in helping successful people make work optional. They're our fiduciary Blue Door personal wealth managers. Hey, where are you going? It's 3 a.m. I can't sleep. I'm going to check out True Wealth and Company online at retirewithtrue.com. That Blue Door is going to be our retirement. 913-653-8783. Visit us online at retirewithtrue.com. Investment advice offered through True Wealth and Company, LLC, a registered investment advisor in the state of Kansas. This is the Corvette Today podcast with Steve Garrett. Thanks for listening to Corvette Today, the podcast. I'm your host, Steve Garrett. My guest today, Jim Merrow. Jim was the Corvette test driver from C4 through C7. Now, Jim, we want to talk about the Nürburgring because the green hell is what the nickname is for the Nürburgring. First, before we get to that, though, talk about your favorite track that you tested Corvette on. Stateside or in the United States, we've been lucky enough to be pretty much everywhere, coast to coast. When it boils down to one track, it's got to be Virginia International Raceway. That track has got a little bit of everything for a driver and development. The top speeds we run there, especially in the ZR1, I think well over 170 miles an hour, were phenomenal for awesome for brake development. Like turn one, you're going 170 down to 50. And there's sections of that track where you got to finesse the car. I mean, turns one through six is not brute force. You got to finesse the car to those turns coming down the roller coaster. You got to finesse the car. But then you come out of six and you come up to those high-speed S's and it's just 
how big are your you-know-whats to get to those turns <laughs> fast. Yeah. And besides the track just being second to none, the entire facility is off the charts for accommodations. We were able to stay in a hotel room above the garages where the cars were on the front straightaway. Wow. The staff is great. They're accommodating. Every experience I had there from driving and logistics and just interacting with the VIR people was excellent. But when you come to the world, man, there's nothing like the Nürburgring. Now, you guys started testing at the Nürburgring when? Because I know that was a big deal for Corvette to go to the Nürburgring. Yeah, the first testing was actually in the late 90s. It was the CTS. They wanted to go head-to-head with BMW. Ken Morris, who was the development engineer on the CTS back in the time, he's a vice president now, knew that if you wanted to perform in Europe on par with BMW, then you had to do well at the Nürburgring because that's where all cars are measured. That's the track everybody cares about. In summer of 2000, I had just transitioned into the ride handling development job on the Cadillac STS, which was going to be obviously a derivative of the CTS. And lucky for me, my first assignment was to get trained at the Nürburgring. They wanted me to be trained and ready to go before I got properties or cars. At the time, I had been racing for 15 years. I had been to Le Mans in 95, but I knew very little about the Nürburgring. Yeah, I've heard of it. I just, because it wasn't in my world, I didn't know a lot about it. And I went there to the track and the first time around it, I went, holy crap, I just died and went to heaven. (laughs) I've never seen anything like it in the world. And that's because there is nothing like it in the world. And luckily for me, the original intent was I was supposed to go fly in and get trained for two days because in order to drive during industry pool, when the manufacturers drive, you have to be certified. Oh, You get trained for two days and then your instructor decides whether or not you're certified and then you're good to go. So it was only supposed to be a two-day trip. But at the same time, Dave Hill, the Corvette chief, wanted to join Cadillac and be recognized on the world stage as an Nürburgring authority. And luckily for me, Dave Wickman, who became my eventual boss in the Corvette, said, hey, since you're going to be over there anyway, because I had experience driving 24-hour tests, he goes, how would you like to spend an extra week driving C5s acquiring data? I couldn't get the word yes out of my mouth fast enough. <laughs> my three-day trip ended up being almost two weeks. You know, I spent the whole second week driving Corvettes. All we were doing is gathering data, and it was great. And actually, throughout my trips on the STS, there were several times when Dave asked me to spend an extra week. They were getting ready for the C6 and things like that. It was all about getting data. By the time I got the job on Corvette, I probably had two to 300 laps on the Nürburgring and Corvettes. Wow. And that's just because right place, right time, I guess. But the most significant feature of the Nürburgring, besides the fact that it's super fast and doesn't have any runoff, is from a chassis standpoint, it's the amount of vertical travel at high speeds especially in the middle of corners. You're going through several corners at 140 miles an hour and a car is jumping and bucking like crazy, especially when you go there with a new property and no calibration. But luckily we had a magnetic ride that eased the pain and we could dial it in pretty fast. The other thing that we realized early on was what I call chassis loads is the amount each suspension component sees on the Nürburgring. And probably the biggest one is at the bottom of the Germans call it fluke throw, we call it foxhole. I think in the ZR1, I was doing about 174. 
and the entire suspension goes into full compression, just slams down. The car is lifting, and you come to the bottom, and it slams down 174 miles an hour. The loads that were going through the chassis points were through the roof. And early on, when they were doing the Cadillac stuff, there was stuff breaking. It wasn't uncommon to crack suspension combos, sometimes wheels. But luckily, we have a great loads group at the proving grounds, so we would instrument a car and send it over there, and I got to do several laps. It's like one of these cars with just stuff hanging all off of it to measure every part of the car gets measured for loads. After they got the data of the amount of loads seeing at the Nürburgring, I don't ever, ever remember breaking anything. By the time the Corvette was hardcore in the Nürburgring, it was bulletproof. You had it dialed in, didn't you? Yeah. And there was a few other things we had to enhance or refine, you know, some ABS stuff, some performance tracks and stuff. But one thing I can assure you is because of the Nürburgring, I can guarantee you 100% the Corvette is a significantly more robust car. I can imagine. Let's talk a little bit more about the C7 at the Nürburgring because that was a big deal. I know that you really wanted to get underneath that seven-minute mark at the Nürburgring. Talk about that, Jim. Yeah, and I'm here to tell you that the C7 is a rock star around the Nürburgring. But one of the most bittersweet things is we never released a time, and we have times. We have really good times for C51, which is 7.39, and I went off twice in that lap. I got one opportunity last day of the trip, and it was because somebody else canceled, and I got the red mist a little bit too much. I went off twice, lost three seconds. It was faster than the first Z06 time that we ran in the C6. The Grand Sport, we had a 7.27, the Z06, 7.10. And obviously the ZR1 was 704, which I'll talk a little bit about in a second here. But the story of why each individual time didn't get released, it'll take up another podcast. So (laughs) it's not because there was anybody at GM that didn't want to release them. The only thing I can say, I said it in the past and I'll say it again, it's a series of fortunate events. You can't make this stuff up. And it wasn't like they were like a year or two apart. So it's just, okay, we'll wait for the next one, wait for the next one. Going back to the sub seven time, again, if I went through every detail again, that would be a third podcast. So I'm going to kind of go through the Cliff Notes version. When they were talking about the CR1 specs and the amount of power that car was going to make and the aero packages, I had just got back from Germany. We just finished and ran the 710 lap in the Z06. When they said the C7 ZR1 was going to be 755 horsepower. They were going to have big wings, big arrow, less drag than the Z06. I knew that was a sub-7 car immediately. I mean, I didn't have to. Sure. We ran simulations, but I knew before that we ran simulations that it was a sub-7 car, which is part of the reason that back in the day, and, and I kind of knew I was going to retire, Dave Wickman said when they were bubbling up the C8, he said, kind of make a decision here. You want to do the initial stuff on the C8 or you want to stick with the C7? And I'm like, there's no one else driving the ZR1 but me. Right. I said, I'll stick with the C7. And we spent a total of six weeks at the Nürburgring in the ZR1 in this quest to go sub seven. We spent two weeks in April of 2017 and two weeks in June of 2017. And as far as 2017, I don't want to go into the details, but I fully believe that if it were not for, let's just say, some poor decision making by very smart people, but had no idea on what it took to run a fast lap, there was lack of attention to detail by some new folks, we would have gone sub seven in 2017. But that didn't happen. I'm just going to leave it at that. 
In April of 2018, there was a full-out attempt to objective that trip. Usually, the objective of the trip is to develop the car for excellent drivability on the Nürburgring, and you spend almost all your time doing it. And then at the end, you run for time. The lap time is not the objective. But in 2018, the lap time was the objective. Again, I'm going to give you the Cliff Notes version of this because the story is pretty long. The most noted time was the 704 we ran, and the events that led up to that were unfortunately stacked against us. By the time I got to the point where I was slated to run the lap for time, if you combined all the segment times from 2017 and 2018, it was 654. But I kind of put that aside because in April of 2017, the weather was really cold. It was perfect for power. And and grip was not a problem if you just got your warm-up lap. The car was making ridiculous horsepower numbers. And we were hoping for the same thing in 2018. You know, we get there in 2018, and it's in the 70s and 80s almost every day. In Germany, I'm like, I can't believe this. Yeah. So I just said, I'm going to put the 2017 stuff aside because I can't rely on those segment times because the power was ridiculously high. And I just looked at the April of 2018 segment times, and that was still 657. And for every lap I've ever run while we had segment times, I've always beat the segment times. I wasn't too concerned about getting under seven minutes. But part of that process was a warm-up lap. I had the warm-up lap down to a science. You don't start warming the tires up with 14 miles to drive. Sections of the track, I knew, okay, I'm going to be 50%, 60%, 70%, 80%. And I had it down. So when I took the first turn for time, we were at perfect pressures and at peak grip. From the first lap I ran in 2008 up until the lap with the ZR1, we always got a warm-up lap for one hour. Before the scheduled time to run for time, the Nürburgring decided that we're not going to allow a warm-up lap. We're going to send you in at the end of the main straight, which is almost at the end of the lap. And basically, I had three quarters of a mile and three turns to get the tires up to operating temperature. And I knew we didn't have a prayer. We were basically screwed. But I tried. We ran 704. I almost wrecked the car three or four times because what the problem was to properly warm a tire on the track, it's about tractive force and normal force. And when you come across the start finish line of cold tires, you're warming them up with slip angles, massive slip angles, off the chart slip angles. And that's not the way you warm a tire up. So even though they got temperature into them, it wasn't proper. And so the balance was ridiculous. It was understeering, going to oversteer, completely unhinged. I drove my rear end off. I mean, it was probably the best lap I'd ever driven under those circumstances. You know, and I'm talking about a car that was perfect an hour before, and it was perfect the next morning. And when we were done, and I'm telling you, Taj, and those guys went all in to do this. And we got done, and I'm just sitting in the office going, after the the situations with the Z51, the Grand Sport, the Z06, and I'm just like, I can't believe it just happened again. You can't make this stuff up. It was devastating. It wasn't about me or General Motors. It was about the customer. The C7 Corvette customer deserved to know how good their car was on that track, and we couldn't provide it for them, even though it was spectacular. It was just a tough time, you know. Absolutely right. Jim, you've driven so many laps all over the world. How many laps do you think you've driven on the Nürburgring and some other tracks stateside and others outside of the United States? I think on the Nürburgring, it's probably close to 4,000 laps. Going back to 2000, I went there for 18 years. Wow. Sometimes two or three trips a year. And going back to that first test I ran in 95 at Grattan in the C4, I would guess that probably I'm in the neighborhood of 40,000 laps total. 
Unbelievable. 40,000 laps. Yeah. Amazing. Yep. That's crazy. Lucky. I'm a lucky dude, man. You are a lucky man indeed, my friend. Yep. You talked about this, but let's talk about it a little bit more. Tires play such an integral part in performance. What tires do you now recommend for track and for street use? For the street and a street tire on the track, I've seen nothing better than what Michelin has to offer. I remember when we were preparing to develop the C6 ZR1, I had just got done completing the C6 Z06, and that car was on the Goodyear F1 supercar tires, which were not very good tires. You know, I told you just how the ZR1 drove and, and that 704 lap. This was significantly worse. I'm very concerned about, okay, now we're going to add another 140 horsepower all to the rear tires. I went to Dave Hill, and then shortly after Tom Wallace, chief engineers, I said, how about we do a shootout for the business between Michelin and Goodyear? We didn't have any contract obligations with any tire company for the car. It's just always been Goodyear. But because this the ZR1 was going to be off the charts from the amount of power a Corvette has ever seen, I was very concerned about having a warmed-over F1 supercar tire. So they agreed to let us do a shootout between Michelin and Goodyear. And it was probably one of the best suggestions I ever made because Michelin ran the table. Every test we did, Michelin won, and it was by a significant margin. I don't know if you know Lee Willard. Lee designs the tires for the streetcar as well as a race car. And Lee's a tire designing genius, as well as his new sidekick, Dr. Jeff Anderson. When you think there's just no more to get, they find something. And I'm not here to dog Goodyear. Goodyear has stepped up their game, too. And I'm told that Goodyear is putting out some really good stuff now. Goodyear is good company, good people. And I think Goodyear be, is now much better because of what happened on that Corvette. As far as race tires, to be honest with you, I'm, I'm not going to make something up. I don't know. I, in all my years on Corvette, we were on production tires. Talk about some of the significant performance upgrades that Corvette has done that you've tested. Well, since I already talked about the performance upgrades we went through the generations of cars, I'm just going to touch on the from a track standpoint. Just as I spoke about, the tires are the most important thing on the car. You could have the perfect car, the geometry's perfect, the kinematics are perfect. If it's on junk tires, it'll drive like junk. Consequently, you could have a substandard suspension design. And if you put it on a good tire, it'll drive good, at least for a while. And that's why, luckily, we had both. We had a great architecture. And, you know, my fondness for Michelin is pretty clear by now. So you compile those two together, you got a great package. Probably the second thing was going from the C6 to the C7 was the downforce. The C6 ZR1 was, I believe, the highest downforce car, maybe the Z07. I believe they were the same packages. And both those cars had rear downforce, but they had front lift. However, the uh, net result was still downforce. When you compare that to what we did for the C7 Z06, and then obviously the C7 Zero One with the wings, it's just night and day. I can imagine. Yep. Talk about the track at Spring Mountain and also at the National Corvette Museum, the new motorsports track. That is a brand new track, and I know that Spring Mountain is really great. I've driven Spring Mountain myself when I bought my C7 Stingray Z51. Do you like both of those tracks as well? Have you driven the NCM track? Yeah, they're both great facilities. We started going to Spring Mountain. I think the first trip I remember being there was, uh, again, before I was the Corvette development engineer, but we were running 24 hours on the 2002 Z06 when they went from 385 horsepower to 405 horsepower on the LS6. And back then, it was just the original 2.2-mile track, and there was two big tents, and it was owned by Rupert Smith. 
There's some tracks around the country that I've always told people, uh, Spring Mountain's one of them. A local track here, Waterford Hills is one of them. I said, go to this track and figure out how to go fast and you'll be able to go fast anywhere. There you go. Spring Mountain, you're on the wheel the whole time. There is no downtime. VIR, you come out of Oak Tree and you're like, okay, I got five or six, maybe seven seconds to look at gauges, <laughs> relax. <laughs> you, know, you, you come, you know, at Spring Mountain, there's none of that. You are driving the car the entire time. It makes a tank of fuel pretty long, especially when you get towards the end and things are starting to go away. But, you know, again, learn how to drive the track fast and you'll be fast anywhere. But now, you know, the Spring Mountain has become this beautiful resort. It's amazing how it's blossomed. It's a world-class facility as far as I'm concerned. As far as the museum track, I've got a lot less laps there. I do have laps. And a museum track, at least in the configurations I drove, it reminds me of Spring Mountain in character of, again, there's not a lot of downtime. I think you can make one of the configurations where you run, you know, it's almost like running from Louisville to Nashville on a straightaway. But the configurations I ran, it, it, again, you're on the wheel the whole time. And there's off-camber turns. There's some blind stuff. And, you know, a lot of mechanical grip stuff that it's all geared to make you a better driver. There's some easy tracks in this country that are more about what you got underneath you than your talent. So both those tracks are geared towards making you a better driver. And without question, they accomplish that. In either track, if you get fast in either track, you'll be fast anywhere. We're talking with Jim Miro, the former Corvette test driver, the world-famous Corvette test driver. In segment number three, we're going to get a little bit more personal with Jim. You're listening to Corvette Today, the podcast. Fact. According to the March of Dimes, 40,000 babies are born each year in the United States with heart defects. At Athletic Testing Solutions, we take that, well, to heart. ATS offers the ATS Heart Check, a series of non-invasive tests to identify possible hidden heart defects in your kid's heart. Frequently, the symptoms of sudden cardiac arrest are masked or misdiagnosed. The ATS Heart Check can help detect congenital heart problems or abnormalities that don't show up during regular checkups or a sports physical. The ATS Heart Check is a terrific option, and it gives you peace of mind that your child is heart safe. Sudden cardiac arrest claims on average 130 young lives every week. Don't let your kids be a statistic. The ATS Heart Check takes only 20 to 30 minutes and it utilizes an EKG, an echocardiogram ultrasound of the heart. Visit ATSHeartCheck.com. Schedule your child today. Call toll-free 888-537-2597. That's 888-537-2597. You're listening to the Corvette Today Podcast with Steve Garrett. Thanks for listening to Corvette Today, the podcast. I'm your host, Steve Garrett. Today, my guest is the world-famous test driver for Corvette, Jim Miro. Jim, let's talk a little bit more about cars that have been benchmarked for Corvette, because that's a big deal. Talk about the process, the cars that are there, and the specific characteristics you're looking for to incorporate into Corvette. We've had a lot of reference cars. They had a ton of the C8, obviously for the C8. When you're going to different architecture, at least look at what everybody's doing. And from what everything I'm reading is they accomplished and doing a great job beating all those cars. For us, we had a lot of Porsches, a couple of Vipers, several Ferraris. Quite frankly, there's a lot of things that I care for about in those cars. Most of them were pretty punishing ride. I would spend 45 minutes on Michigan roads in any one of those cars and I was done. But the most significant feature that I think we took away from those, I mean, there was some aero stuff, but the structural integrity of the Porsche, it was pretty significant over what we had in the sixth generation car. 
we really realized that even though the car was pretty rough over roads, you could feel this platform underneath you that just felt great. So in the end, I don't remember the actual numbers for first moment bending and torsional, but I'm guessing that we either met or exceeded what they had at the time with the C7. And then there were a lot of other features, obviously, interior fit and finishes, the seats. I mean, the Porsche seats were awesome. And then we benchmarked those. And, and in the end, I think the C7 and I'm told the C8 is as good or better now. True. Is there something that you wanted to add to Corvette that never made it to the car? Yeah. <laughs> several things don't get me wrong even though there were some things i wanted to add there was a lot that i wanted and because Taj understood the significance of the performance aspects of the corvette all we had to do was show him some data on how a certain feature would improve the car and he would make it happen he's a chief engineer's chief engineer as far as overrules <laughs> for the C7 ZR1, first one, it would be I wanted new tires for that car. You know, that was a 2019 model. The intent was to use the tires from the Z06, which Lee Willard and I had developed in 2014 for the 15 car. In four years, you can make a lot of improvement. I mean, Lee, I can't do anything. Lee Willard can create magic in four months, let alone four years. I was worried about adding another 105 horsepower straight to the rear tires. Give Michelin their due. I think anybody who owns a C7 ZR1 has no problem managing the rear grip in that car. Not to say that new tires wouldn't have made it better. I mean, you look at what Porsche's got in the Cup 2Rs, we would have had at least that probably something better. It is what it is. I mean, it, that car is my favorite Corvette ever. The only other thing I can remember was from the beginning, probably after we did the magnetic ride, when we did the magnetic ride on the uh, C6 ZR1, if you go back to the beginning with magnetic ride, it was an option on the base car. I don't want to say it was gimmicky because it would still made the car better, but you can't make a car handle a lot better with just new shocks. What I convinced Dave Hill and then Tom Wallace is that I want to work it opposite. I want to take it and I want to take the hardcore car. I want to make it ride better with magnetic ride. And I think we did a pretty good job of it at the time. Obviously, we've learned a lot more and all the way up to the 2019 C7s. And as good as the ZR1 is on the track, it's a good daily driver as well. Right. But in my opinion, no Corvette should be sold without MR. And the reason for that is when you have a car that'll do 180 miles an hour, we have to make sure it drives exceptional at 180 miles an hour. Right. And the beauty of magnetic ride is I can tune everything, daily driving, 60 miles an hour, 50, 40. But when I go to the Autobahn and run 180 miles an hour, they have algorithms that will give me a complete different set of parameters at those speeds. And we can also scale all the base algorithms by vehicle speed. So when you compare that to a passive shock, if you have to make changes in the passive shock at 180 miles an hour, you own those changes at 60 miles an hour. So, and that, and that was one thing, I mean, Harlan Charles is a good friend. I just listened to his podcast with you and man, he's a great ambassador for GM, but that was the one thing we, he and I would go back and forth with our meetings. One of the things that I'll say is that I didn't understand the business aspects of the Corvette. Harlan did. <laughs> And he needed to protect the base price of that car, which was Paramount. And I respected that. And a magnetic ride base car would increase the price significantly. But I had to try. 
Harlan's got a place in my heart because he was one of those guys that was, we were getting pushed back. And, you know, a lot of times that they sent C7R drivers out to the Nürburgring to cut the times that I had to defend my turf against Johnny O'Connell, <laughs> yeah. Jan Magnuson, and Oliver Gavin. Harlan was the guy saying, hey, I like us doing this with engineers. When everybody else is using pros. So he's got a special place in my heart, man. He always supportive of the way we were doing it. That's very true. Talk about the difference in test driving from a track to a road. I know there's different things that you've got to do to make sure that the car drives well on both. What do you do as a test driver to differentiate that? I'll spend more time on the public roads, making sure that car is a good daily driver than a racetrack, probably by ratio I would say 50 to one for every hour on the track, I would spend 50 on the road. And it's probably more than that. Obviously didn't accumulate the time, but just weeks, months, I would spend on the public roads, working the calibrations, making sure that car is a good daily driver. You know, creating a good track car is complicated, but it's not as complicated as creating a great road car. You know, when you do the track development, any kind of ride quality is not even considered, right? You don't care about how the car rides in a track mode. However, when you do tour and sport, the car's handling still has to be world-class, but the ride can't punish the driver. So now you're working both aspects of the car. You're making sure that it's a perfect car from a handling standpoint, but every owner who drives that car as a daily driver takes trips in it. It has to be world-class for daily driving. I mean, 95% of the owners don't track the car. Right. So even though the numbers and the track... And that's what gets the car exposure. You want to keep those guys that drive the car as a daily driver. They're your customer. They're the guys who drive the car every day. And they're the guys who, if you beat them up, they're not going to buy another Corvette. Right. Or they're not going to want to drive the car. They're going to say, I got to have a daily driver. I was so empathetic about making sure how well that car drove on the road. I actually got criticized for it. It was a negative on my one of my reviews. I'm retuning all these cars, for instance, in 2019 when upgrades that we eventually made available back to 2014, I'd be halfway through the tuning process and I would figure something out. Say I'm a C7 Grand Sport and I've already finished the base car with MR and the Z51, I'd go back and get those other two cars and I would incorporate these changes. I just couldn't go to sleep knowing that there was something I could make this car better for the customer. Sure. It kind of got to the point where when I was doing those upgrades, I was told, you're spending too much time on this. You have to stop. I said, well, first of all, I made a commitment to the director of SPO that I would do this for him. And there was a whole team assembled around it. And so I ended up finishing those upgrades on my own time. I was working nights, weekends, holidays, so I can get those out because I felt that the customer was entitled to them. Well, it makes sense because you want to get the daily driver taken care of. The track people that track these cars to be taken care of as well. Absolutely. But it's really the daily driver, like you said, that if it's not a comfortable car and a good ride, they're not going to buy another Corvette. Green. Now that you're retired, Jim, what Corvette or Corvettes do you own? I don't have luxury on Corvettes. Like Harlan, for 15 years, I had a fleet of Corvettes at my disposal. I could drive whatever Corvette whenever I wanted it. And I took advantage of that, obviously. A lot of times because driving to and from work, I'm tuning the car. Sure. But I mean, for 15 years, 99% of the time I was in a Corvette. And I thought, okay, when I retire, I'll be able to have my new pickup and be happy. Well, retired for four months. And I bought a 2012 Grand Sport. 
I, mean, I really love that car. It's a great car. Obviously, my dream car is a C7 ZR1, but that's currently out of my price range, and it may remain so because they didn't build a lot of those. So I think that car is going to hold its value. If my worst case is a 2012 Grand Sport with only 3,000 miles on it, that's really good. There you go. Do you take your wife driving? Do you show her what it's like to be a test driver for Corvette every once in a while? Not really. She doesn't <laughs> like going fast. I'll tell you a pretty funny story. First of all, when I'm not tuning, when I'm a civilian, I'm a six miles per hour cruise control on guy listening to podcasts. There you go. And let me tell you, I live and die by that cruise control because every road I'm on, it's six over cruise control on because now I'll get tickets because I'm inattentive to my speed. <laughs> Funny story was back in 2014, we were supposed to do a two-week trip for the Z07 and it ended up being seven weeks. We wanted to make some ABS calibration changes. During this time, the Nürburgring, it was in November, so the official industry pool time had closed. If there was enough manufacturers interested in continual testing, they would say, okay, this is how much it'll cost to rent the track for this week for three days. And obviously, we participated in that. But in between those track sessions was an open week. But I took full advantage of that because I was always working the car on the Autobahn. But because I was there for so long, GM flew Terry out for a week. She got to spend time with me. And I told her, I said, you know, just because you're here doesn't mean I don't have to work. I mean, I'll be on the Autobahn working the cars. I remember driving to Paris with her in a rental car. I got about 120 miles an hour and she was just having fits. <laughs> she was not liking it. And so I gave her the option. I said, you can stay in the hotel or you can come with me. Said, it's up to you. And now she gets bored pretty easily, understandably so. So she reluctantly decided to ride shotgun. There were some growing pains at the beginning of the uh, development process with her, but we made an agreement. Okay, I will work the Autobahn, say, from 9 o'clock in the morning to 3 in the afternoon, and then we'll go to some city and have dinner and visit and things like that. There you go. By the third day, she was playing with her iPad, and I'm running down Autobahn 180, 200 miles an hour. <laughs> She's not even paying attention. She adjusted pretty quick to it. And then to this day, she loves telling that story to all her friends. She's pretty proud of being shotgun in a car going that fast. That's pretty funny. The only other one I can think of is I've talked about before in Southeastern Ohio, there's some of the best roads I've ever been on the planet that I used exclusively to tune the sport modes in every seventh generation car. It's only about five hours from where I live. And I've always wanted to go back there in my car, my Grand Sport. But my guess is that if we drive like we did when we were developing the C7, she's probably going to take a pass on that trip. <laughs> You'll be going by yourself on that trip, right? Yeah, I'll be going solo. There you go. Jim, you've been retired for a couple of years now. Talk about your business now that you've been retired from General Motors. I touched on going back to the 2019 C7. Over the evolution of the magnetic ride, and you know, for me, by the, that time, it was probably 17 or 18 years because I started with the Cadillac STS. It was fairly new technology, but... Over the years, BWI was gathering more data and we were understanding the dampers more. And so all your tuning philosophies changed and you can attack magnetic ride in several different directions, just creating damping. As we went through C7, you know, more and more data came in and I just kind of had a new revelation that basically I needed to strip down the calibrations to nothing and rebuild them up because of some benchmark bench test data we had just recently gotten from BWI. It was so big that I convinced the director of service parts. I said, it's so big that I can't see a guy with a 2014 Z51 not having access to these new calibrations. I mean, just take them to dealership and let them flash them. So they actually put a team together and they did it. 
the C7s can all be upgraded at a dealership. Right. And I retired and started thinking about, was that much of improvement in C7? And I started thinking about how we tuned the C6, which was even a little more archaic than the C7. And I said, you know, I'm going to mess around with this a little bit and see what I can come up with. And boom, I, mean, I got my hands on a friend ZR1. And in two weeks, the improvement in both and handling had been more significant than the C7s. Wow. So I guess I'm not going to retire and decided to kind of a, a chase this for a little bit and see what we could come up with. And I'm like, worst case scenario, I get some golf money. Best case scenario is I get all these great customers into what I consider a new car. And that's the way it's kind of transpired. With these new calibrations, I offer 100% money back guarantee. If you don't like the car, I can put it back to the original cal or I'll get you a controller. You have to buy it and you can have it the way it was. We're well over two or 300 cars and I have not I had one person bring it back. As a matter of fact, got a lot of good testimonials on my webpage. What is your website and how can someone get a hold of you to get this new calibration? My website is just www.jimmero.com. That's J-I-M-M-E-R-O. And on the website, you'll find how you can obtain the calibration, the benefits, each mode. There's several options that you can get. And the biggest thing is the testimonials. Those are the ones I strive to get the most because people don't want to hear what I have to say about it. They want to hear what the customers have to say about it. Absolutely. And then there's a contact page on there where you can send me an email. If you want to just send me an email directly, it's just jim at jimmerrill.com. Pretty straightforward. Jim, thank you so much for taking the time to be on the Corvette Today podcast. I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. Absolutely love, love, loved all the stories. Well, it's my pleasure. It's just happy to be part of this community. Thanks to our flagship sponsors of Corvette Today, Hendrick Chevrolet of Kansas City at ChevyUSA.com and MidEngineCorvetteForum.com. You've been listening to Corvette Today with Steve Garrett. If you'd like to contact Steve with any thoughts on the podcast or ideas for guests on Corvette Today, you can email him at stevegarrettdj at gmail.com. That's stevegarrettdj at gmail.com. Garrett has two R's and two T's. Or connect with Steve on social media on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram using at stevegarrettdj. Thanks again for listening to Corvette Today.